Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October the 13th, 2023. Happy Friday the 13th to everybody out there. We were not unlucky, though, with the FDA news flow this week. First up is the averted threat of a government shutdown. Congress waited only a few hours before appropriations ran out to pass a temporary extension. And while FDA's funding continued unabated, there still were consequences of the move. The Regulatory Affairs Professional Society Convergence Conference was scheduled for October 4th and 5th, which was a few days after potentially funding would have expired. Several FDA officials were scheduled to present during a number of sessions at the conference, which is for industry, academic, and other professionals in the FDA space. With the shutdown looming and it unclear whether the agency would be running at full capacity on the day of the conference, FDA officials decided to cancel the trip to Montreal for many staffers. That meant most of them had to present via Zoom or pre-recorded video. Now, you might say, okay, that's not a big deal, but for the FDA officials as well as the attendees at the conference, a potentially valuable networking and educational opportunity was lost. Interestingly, FDA Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock was able to appear at the conference in person, although it's not clear why. One theory is that one theory is that the number two in command at the agency, she she's able to navigate the travel request process a lot faster than the rank and file staff can. I don't want to I don't want to oversell the impact of this because at the end of the day, you know, everything everyone was able to give their presentations and it wasn't, you know, the lack of travel is not like the end of the world. But I'm curious what you all think of this. You know, this is, seems to show that even the threat of a shutdown, you know, still has an impact, even if it's averted, even, you know, at, at the last minute, it feels like. So, sorry. Um, yeah, I was going to say we see I mean, we see this right every time there's almost a shutdown, right, that agencies have to pause from their day to day work just to prepare for the potential threat of a shutdown. Right. And that takes energy and resources and you know, just drawing up the plans, sending out the notices and stuff. So, right, I mean, even when shutdowns don't happen, there are usually um, some consequences <laughs> for the regular workflow and um, for agencies. And we, again, we know we're in this sort of um, environment now where we're operating under a very short-term continuing resolution. So that's not ideal either for the agency, right, for long-term planning and so forth as well. So, you know, even under the, this is a one of those, better options of not great options, I guess, for them to be in right now, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's better than the government being shut down, but we're certainly not in like a, a great place for continue, for continuity for the FDA. I'm not sure. I think I might have made up a word, but I think you guys know what I'm saying. Continuity. There you Continuity. Go. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't think of how to pronounce it. <laughs> Yeah, Derek, while you were at uh, um, uh, RAPS in Montreal, I was at the uh, uh, Generic and uh, Biosimilars uh, conference sponsored by uh, AAM, the, uh, uh, the the trade association. Uh, um, and that was just in Bethesda, you know, sort of a short uh, hop on the beltway away from uh, um, uh, FDA at uh, White Oak. And there were sort of as scheduled, you know, all the uh, all the FDA folks, but they were also under threat uh, there, too. And, the, you know, the, the same dynamics uh, would have applied, uh, um, you know, uh, apparently there they were, uh, um, there was uh, talk about sort of kind of what the impact on inspections would have been um, had there been a shutdown. And they said, uh, you know, they would have gone on, uh, um, you know, regardless. And uh, but obviously, as uh, Sarah was saying, there's kind of any 
you know, distraction from, uh, you know, actual, uh, you know, review or, uh, you know, product focused uh, work, uh, you know, be it uh, guidance development or what have you uh, as well, you know, just for kind of slows the agency down and therefore sort of slows uh, um, industry drug development down. You know, there's certainly a, uh, um, you know, a school of philosophical thought that says that uh, uh, the less the government does, the uh, the better. And, you know, that's a, uh, um, uh, you know, working its, its way out sort of with this uh, whole shutdown uh, fight. But I think, uh, you know, if you are in a, uh, uh, you know, the, the biopharma or even the generic industry, you want uh, FDA to be as focused as possible on the stuff that uh, matters to you and not the uh, um, the spending proceduralism of the uh, um of the potential shutdown, and that's a uh, that's a real problem that uh, you know uh, seems like uh, um, uh, industry is going to be having to deal with uh, you know for the foreseeable future, not just sort of uh, with this cycle, but uh, you know every time there's a fiscal year, I think it's going to be a uh, a fight depending on how uh, Congress and the the administration uh, you know is configured uh, next year or even after the next uh, elections, uh, um, just for given the uh, the broader political dynamics that people are uh, are dealing with. Yeah, I I heard from some people too about um yeah the the issue with inspections and and they they told me the same thing that so far they hadn't seen any delays yet. I mean, but that's you know again it, I I think you're right, Matt. Industry doesn't want to think about this problem because they've got too many other problems to think about. So wondering whether or not you're the you know inspections that you wait sometimes weeks or months or however long it takes to get these things on the books and scheduled. Um, you know, wondering whether at the last second the rug's going to get pulled out from under you is not, you know, not ideal. We we should also note that travel cancellations actually are not a these are these are not a new thing, especially during shutdown. Um, during the shutdown in 2013, like Matt, I was at a local uh, rare disease conference here in Washington, which is you know, like you met Matt said, five or six miles from White Oak. None of the FDA people were allowed to show up. They just said they said at the top of the conference, the government shut down. No one from FDA is going to be here. And again, in, in, during the 2018-2019 shutdown, a conference in San Francisco was just outright canceled because Janet Woodcock and some others who were supposed to be there, you know, just we couldn't go. So the the impact of this is potentially, you know, kind of roll, you know, gets bigger and bigger as you know. The longer, you know, the the more severe these shutdowns get. But I also wonder, you know, if I mean, and I, it, it seems like everything comes back to morale and and recruitment and retention um, with FDA. And, you know, I, I still want. I wonder if even little things like this, like being told, "Sorry, I know you've been planning to go to Montreal for like a month or two months," or for me, I think it was like three months when I found out that I was going to be going. Um, you know, sorry, you can't go now. It's I wonder if the like little things like that just after a while, you know, it kind of builds up and bothers people enough. And then, you know, when the decision when it comes time to think about, you know, well, do I wanna, you know, exit government service and do something else? Or, you know, am I still as committed to the mission as, you know, as I as I always have been? You wonder if that, you know, this kind of weighs on people, um, you know, as they as they make those decisions. I mean, I, I know from outside of the FDA space, I, I know people that, you know, those dynamics have impacted their, um, you know, career and decisions and so forth, you know, if you, and 
you, like your story sort of focused on how Woodcock was able to go, but other people were not. And, I, you know, sometimes I think it's probably some of those sort of lower level, mid to lower career people, right? Who, you know, if you, if you were really hoping on some presentation at a conference kind of elevating your resume and say, you know, like those, for those people that being able to attend and what they get out of it in some ways might be more important or the, the missing out of certain events might be more significant than somebody who's, you know, at that senior level, like Woodcock who gets to go, right? And those are maybe the people that FDA kind of also needs to hold on to and keep to have them grow into the next, you know, Woodcocks of the FDA. So it's that, um, it's the delicate, I think there's sort of this delicate balance because some of the people most impacted in a way by the shutdowns are the ones you kind of want to keep on and keep interested in long-term government service. Yeah. Well, and two, like a lot of it is like professional, like ed- professional development. I mean, the right. you know, they, they, they get continuing education credits, whether it's legal education, medical education. I think, you know, there's continuing regulatory education or something. Um, I mean, it was a uh, is a while ago, several years ago now. But there was a there was like a a really like crackdown on travel, government travel. After there was some it was some kind of scandal where like they were someone was taking first class and trips and planning lavish conferences. I think it was or something. And so they they really cut back on all that. And they were saying the big the big the people that suffered the most were like. The physicians and scientists who needed to go to things like ASCO to learn about what's going on in the oncology space or, you know, like those kinds of professional conferences where you need to not just, you know, shake hands with colleagues, but actually learn about the latest, the cutting edge science and everything else. So, yeah, it's a it's a this this is kind of a a delicate kind of, uh, you know, situation or delicate balance they kind of have to they have to have here when they're working on something like this. Next, we're going to look at a complete response letter that Al Nylum received for its on Patro. Sarah, CRs are not uncommon. Why did this one stick out? So this one, I think, got um, a bit of attention because um, the advisory committee voted in favor of approval, and it was a... um, a nine to three vote, which I think um, a lot of people took as like a clearly lopsided vote, you know, that shows, you know, maybe more of a strongly in favor. And so I think some people were, you know, initial reaction was, oh, this is a big shock. FDA didn't approve the um, product or the um, SNDA really. So it was a supplemental indication. Um, But you know, if you had followed that advisory committee really closely, you could you it was pretty clear that the panel was, you know, voting in favor of risks outweigh benefits, but it wasn't exactly a overly enthusiastic vote. Um, you know, some people were actually, you know, even made very clear, well, we we think the risks outweigh the benefit. I mean, the benefits outweigh the risks, sorry. But, you know, because it was, it's seen as a fairly safe drug, all things considered, but at the same time, they weren't really sure there was a clinically meaningful benefit. And that's a big, um, a big but for FDA, you know, in the, in the vote. Um, So um, FDA um, coming into the meeting seemed not particularly interested in approving the drug. And I think the committee gave the agency more than enough reasons to go with its initial, you know, feeling, which was, 
this is not ready for prime time. And I think this is something that, you know, we've all probably heard FDA say a lot of times that, you know, the votes are part of the advisory committee, but we're also really here to listen to what people are saying about why they're voting one way and hear all the nuance. And it's not just all about the numbers. And this was, I think, a clear example of FDA acting on sort of the totality of what occurred in the meeting. And um, so I think, again, if you're really paying attention to um, what FDA said, what the committee said, and so forth, this wasn't as much of a shock as you would think. And um, actually kind of in looking back at some of our previous coverage of, you know, the instances where FDA and its advisory committees, at least in terms of what the vote numbers would tell you, don't end up reaching the same decision. It's actually most common that when they don't agree, it's in these kinds of situations where the advisory committee vote seemed to suggest approval and FDA took a more conservative action. I mean, which overall both situations are rare. I mean, situations of disagreement are rare, but um, this is actually the most common type of disagreement, which I, I thought was kind of interesting since um, the flips, the flip situations get the most attention, I think, publicly, you know, when we think back to the Adjuhelms and the Treplicins of the world where um, advisors told FDA do not approve this and FDA said, now nah, we're going to do it anyway. Really interesting uh, uh, stories here. A lot of uh, fun data you had, uh, um, you know, from sort of an academic study and then sort of another uh, um, uh, study sort of looking at, uh, um, you know, advisory committee uh, um, uh, votes and sort of kind of uh, FDA subsequent uh, actions. So uh, um, uh, great stuff in there. And then also I wanted to flag uh, a companion story we ran from uh, Provision Policies, uh, Mike McCann, who sort of kind of looked at sort of kind of uh, the uh, the other product in this space, the uh, um, uh, Pfizer's uh, Vandequil, and uh, you know he noticed that sort of kind of uh, you know the the uh, advisory committee situation with uh, with them and their various indications uh, here was sort of almost sort of the mirror image that sort of kind of you know with uh, um, uh, that they'll have sort of kind of uh, um, in many ways sort of kind of the the inverse label, uh, um, and they also had sort of the inverse uh, advisory committee uh, vote uh, votes about those. Uh, um, uh, various indications. So I would encourage uh, 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 people to check that out too. Uh, sorry, Derek, I cut you off. Go ahead. I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I'm gonna ask maybe one somewhat provocative question here. Is, is this an example of what Dr. Califf would say is a reason to not have the quote gladiator votes during advisory committees? Um, I thought that might come up. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, I think that I think the votes are helpful here. But again, it's that totality of the evidence to use sort of an FDA term, perhaps, you know, of thinking about both the votes and the explanation for the votes. Um, because I think particularly when the calls are close, it's I think it is important to like for FDA to push its advisors to say, you know, okay, but but if you're forced to make a call, where do you land? Because that's what's going to happen to FDA, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's important to for them to get that down on paper, because I've definitely listened to way more meetings than I think um, Mike um, McCann has written about this recently. I believe in a story, um, but it can be it it can be much more confusing when you can tell committees are a bit torn to not have the vote because 
you don't, you know, you're just, you're then sort of putting assumptions maybe into their mouths in more, in, in certain ways, especially because sometimes like the voting question, then they have to explain their vote. And that also becomes very helpful. And when you don't even have that, that question that then leads to that verbal explanation, sometimes, you know, if you listen to all of what somebody said leading up to it, you might not get even again, that same verbal content <laughs> you're missing. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I think it's important because again, um, and I think FDA is totally aware of this. They are in this situation where they have to make these sort of yes or no, pretty black and white decisions in very gray worlds. And it's, I, I think it is helpful for them to see how other people, you know, when forced to do that would make it because it's pretty easy to just to put, put that off and punt that on someone else. And I think it's helpful for them to see how other people weigh those factors. Yeah, this made me think back of a <clears throat> a survey that uh, came out after the Agilehelm decision, which was the reverse situation. They said, the committee said no, overwhelmingly said no, and FDA still approved it. And the survey was saying that the committee members wanted more power over agency decisions. And it, it focused on overwhelming votes against approval, as in like if if there's a unanimous vote not to approve something, then that should force the FDA's hand. But I, I, I thought about it as kind of maybe illustrative the other way, if you looked at it the other way too. I mean, like you said, Sarah, nine to three is pretty overwhelming. If, if the committees had the extra power that they wanted in that scenario, they would have forced the FDA to approve something they didn't want to approve. So it's, you know, again, not the exact same situation, and I suspect if those kind of controls were in place, there'd be a lot people would think a lot differently about it. But you know, it's still interesting to kind of to think about the FDA's decision process versus how the advisory committee thinks about things too. Yeah, and I think I mean another thing that's kind of interesting. You know, I mentioned the one comment where, um, so you know, sometimes. So I think, you know, the voting question was kind of, you know, benefits outweigh risks, right? And you, then everybody translates that um, sort of like in press and media and headline coverage to vote for or against approval. And there were clearly people on the committee that like, I'm not sure if they were thinking of it in that literal way, right? And so I think like sometimes, right, you get into all those complications about what were they really asked to vote on? I remember a number of months ago, now, um, you know, I covered a um, committee where I think they separated like the benefit vote and the risk vote and people tr and a lot of people translated their vote into a vote for approval when I, I personally felt like I was in a strange places as a reporter. I didn't think that's what the committee did, because if you actually looked at like who voted for benefits and you know, and who voted that the safety profile was okay. There weren't like a majority of people voting that both it was like safe and effective, you know? So <laughs> I, I think sometimes it's like, again, there are these weird um, nuances <laughs> to questions and interpretations and stuff. And like I said, I think sometimes there are just like these like interesting communication things that happen. And you know, so I, again, it's just like important to, I think, pay attention to the totality of like what the committee thought they were voting for or against and um, how that impacts, you know, FDA's decision making. I mean, I think the other thing that's kind of unique here, right, is this is a supplemental application. And you do sometimes wonder how much that impacts FDA's thinking in terms of 
is there some availability for people for off-label use of the drug? You know, it, and and what role does that play? You know, in a case where they're not, you know, rejecting a product that won't be available at all. Re- yeah, it's really interesting story. Really interesting take, Sarah. Finally, we're going to look at ARPA-H and its relationship with the FDA. The Advanced Research Products Agency for Health was founded in 2022 with a mandate to fund potentially game-changing projects. It was modeled after the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, which helped create breakthroughs like GPS. As part of the law creating ARPA-H, the the agency was given the power to reimburse the FDA for presumably services. But there's no indication of what that means yet. But ARPA-H and the FDA are talking about potential incentives that they could offer sponsors of these game-changing projects should they make it all the way to the FDA. ARPA-H Director Winay Wigurzian, I'm butchering that, I apologize, mentioned one idea could be to allow the product on the market faster than others. The agency also could seek reimbursement for a priority review or other pre-market incentives. ARPA-H does make clear that it's not seeking regulatory changes at the FDA. So for you all, I'm not going to ask you to guess on what what incentives would they could throw out there, but do you think having these conversations with the FDA is necessary right now? Would you guess that known FDA incentives may entice sponsors to submit these sort of game-changing products? Well, Derek, I think you made a good point in your story that uh, – you know, if these uh, products really are as uh, game-changing as uh, you know people hope they will be, they would probably qualify for existing FDA pathways anyway. So there's not, uh, you know, there's not a lot of kind of you know jumping the line uh, capacity. Uh, um, yeah, just about uh, everything. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and uh, you know, and, and frankly, I don't know. We've written about this and talked about it on the pod, uh, um, you know, from time to time too. Is it sort of kind of it seems like more and more things are getting priority review and that maybe that's just a, a reflection of sort of incredibly innovative scientists coming along and sort of coming, becoming products and uh, um, getting to FDA in that way. But, uh, you know, if everything is special, nothing is special. And so do we need like a COVID review speed uh, lane that sort of kind of could be even faster than priority review now? You probably wouldn't want to call it COVID for personal reasons, but sort of kind of the ideas for kind of, you know, FDA doing everything humanly possible to get something, uh, you know, out the door in a um, a matter of weeks and months. Uh, you know, some sort of kind of uh, new tier of review that uh, you know would you know create a significant advantage over uh, um, you know other uh, other products that are uh, um, sitting at the uh, um, at the FDA and going through the uh, the regular procedures. Uh, you know, something like that might be uh, um, might be possible. I mean, I think you're. Um, you're right, as you noted in the story, there's for kind of there is this inherent tension between um, you know FDA as regulator and FDA as uh, you know encourager of innovation. Uh, you know we saw that play out with uh, Operation Warp, Warp Speed, in which uh, you know uh, um, uh, Peter Marcher kind of hopped off of uh, uh, Warp Speed after uh, um, you know uh, apparently even just coining the name, uh, and then he felt that it didn't uh, make sense to sort of have. Uh, um, the person who's going to have to give the thumbs up or thumbs down on the uh, um, eventual vaccines, uh, you know, being the one uh, working on uh, getting them, uh, um, getting them ready, for, ready to, uh, ready to reach FDA. So uh, um, I think that's a uh, um, 
uh, an issue that's going to have to play out. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, as we've seen through, you know, FDA and uh, ARPA H will be, will be smart about this, but it's a, um, it's, it's a complicated situation if you want us to kind of really uh, incentivize uh, new stuff. Uh, um, there are a lot of trade-offs involved. Yeah, I mean, one thing I thought was sort of interesting to think about is, you know, if ARPA-H sort of gives certain like incentives at FDA to um, its projects or um, and so forth, what then happens um, further down the line with, you know, pricing and access for people to these products? Because we know that's been one of the, te- one of the tensions with Operation Warp Speed um, or other um, programs throughout COVID or in just other times when, you know, it's very clear there was a significant government investment in a product or project and what then is owed to the taxpayer because of that. And so I think that's going to be like a delicate balance um, for anybody working on this to think about and strike, because obviously there'll be tensions um, there for industry, I think, right, in terms of what assistance you do you want to take and how and what pressures do you then get put on? you know, when it comes to marketing and pricing and so forth because of that. And um, so I think that all of that's going to have to be kind of carefully um, thought out in this kind of political environment. Yeah, I keep trying to think about, you know, all the different things that FDA does in the drug development process. And a lot of it is people oriented, like meetings and, you know, meetings, you know, a lot of, you know, communication, offering advice, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, pre-IND meetings, innovative clinical trial, you know, meetings, you know, idea, you know, offer, you know, doing those kinds of things. And those aren't bought necessarily. I mean, they're free. You, you get in the program, you get to, you get to have the meetings. So um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to think what, what would be reimbursed you know, or even what incentives you could offer, because like like Matt said, if I mean, if and I'm making this up there, you know, we have no idea what ARPA H has got cooking at the moment. But I mean, if if it was something like we have a cancer vaccine that works for everything, all kinds of cancer, that that's going to get priority review. That's going to get accelerated approval. That's going to get basically everything you could possibly think of to get that make that available as soon as possible, assuming you know the clinical trials are successful and the, and uh, and everything goes as as you would hope. So yeah, I, this is this is a it'll be interesting to see what they come up with here. If if anything, to be honest. <laughs> the other thing that came up um, with ARPAH that I wanted to mention was that they they started they have started announcing where their sort of headquarters are going to be located, and that's headquarters multiple. They decided to create a hub and spoke system, so they're going to have a hub in the Washington D.C. area as well as one in Boston and one in Dallas. Now, you know that normally wouldn't be, you know, it's like okay, but if you remember the the fight that they had on Capitol Hill, at least between some members, over whether where the ARPA-H headquarters should be located and whether it should be in the bureaucratic bubble. Here in D.C., should it be in the National Institutes of Health? Should it be completely outside of D.C.? There were states making bids to ha- to, ho- to host it. Um, it. It was a it was kind of a it, it was kind of a, it was an interesting to kind of thing to kind of watch. And 
eventually it got it got put into NIH, but it's like a separate entity within NIH that reports directly to to HHS the HHS secretary. But this kind of hub hub system where you're kind of splitting it up between, ironically, two of the places that were bidding for the locations or the the headquarters location seems to kind of thread that needle, I guess, where you satisfy everybody that was criticizing them about how about what to do with this. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 much to be uh, said about, uh, you know, the more you uh, spread uh, um uh, the resources around the sort of kind of the uh, the more uh, support you'll find uh, uh, for something, uh, you know, uh, lots of written about sort of kind of how, uh, you know, there's a, you know, a defense uh, industry in sort of, uh, you know, every county in uh, America, allegedly, or, you know, that's not the right stat, but something like that. That's sort of kind of, uh, um, and, you know, you see that honestly with, uh, um, you know, all the NIH research dollars to, to go to all the uh, universities uh, throughout the states. And, uh, you know, I think NIH sort of kind of has uh, um, wished that they sort of got more recognition for that idea that that, uh, that comes up that they're sort of kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're in many ways the ones, uh, you know, building all these uh, research facilities that are uh, um, nominally for kind of the um, the university, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, buildings. But it's uh, NIH money that's uh, that's doing that. And so, uh, you know, the more that uh, ARPA age can uh, um, spread things around, uh, um, you know, I think the uh, uh, the more people will uh, will find it useful. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 